0: Thankful for you. Anybody know who Rex Murphy is? (laughs) Three of you, really? (laughs) Know who Rex Murphy is? Uh, All right. So uh, I like to refer to Rex Murphy as the Don Cherry of Canadian journalism. You know, like he has an opinion and he's going to let you know what it is. He has many opinions and he wrote one particular opinion he had about a climate summit this past summer that was held in Sicily. It was put on by the two co-founders of Google, and they invited a number of billionaires and A-list celebrities to join them in Sicily for a climate summit. Now, here's what Rex Murphy had to say about that. There were about, there were about 300 in attendance, and, it, and they were brought there by 114 private jets, meaning there were less than three people per jet getting to a climate summit where they wanted, you know, the carbon footprint in the world to go down. But he said, not everyone went by private jet. Some came by super yacht. (laughs) And he goes on and talks about, you know, during their free time at this climate summit um, were available, a number of $200,000 gas-guzzling Maserati sports cars were available for them to fly around, zip around Sicily, as one of the things that they were able to do during that time. He, said, he ended the article by saying, but to their credit, there were no plastic straws. <laughs> His whole article was about the point, oh, the hypocrisy of celebrities today. Right, for the minions of the world, they need to lower their carbon footprint. But we are the important ones, and so therefore we can have mansions in different parts of the world fly by private jet or go by super yacht, doesn't apply to us, but it must apply to everyone else or we're really in trouble. Oh, the hypocrisy, Rex Murphy said. What I'm about to say next is not politically motivated at all. You need to know that. I'm just I'm merely commenting on the news I know you've seen that our, <laughs> that our prime minister's been in some hot water lately, right? Has he not? And, and the challenge, right, the pushback about our prime minister lately has been this. He, he's um, the self-proclaimed most progressive prime minister Canada's ever had. But in recent months, though he claims to be this grand feminist, he has got, his treatment of Jody Wilson-Raybould has kind of come out as hypocritical. And then black, these blackface pictures and video have surfaced, or brown faces—they've been uh, referred to in the media, where where this most progressive feminist, um, seeking racial equality and equality on every front, his actions have shown him to not what live by the standards that he actually governs by. And so the outrage that's coming right now against him is about what? Political hypocrisy. But here's the part I need you to hear most. As, as much as you might shake your head in disgust or even revel in the backlash on these celebrities and politicians, it's actually the hypocrisy of religious people that is most off-putting to the masses. You know this, right? So much so that people today are not really asking, is Christianity true? They're asking, why are Christians such bigots? Our sermon series this fall is called Doubt. Every week for the first number of weeks this fall, we're looking at a different major doubt a doubt of people outside the church kind of looking in, and they have these doubts. We're addressing those. But they're also the niggling doubts that exist inside the church as well. And so the question underneath the hypocrisy doubt is this. How can Christianity be true when Christians are hypocrites? That's where we're going to go this morning. Just so we're clear on terms, a hypocrite is a person who claims beliefs that his or her actions are don't conform to. So as people look in at the Christian faith or they look over at a Christian and they say, their faith says they shouldn't gossip, but they're the biggest gossip that I know. Or or, I know their faith says something about the fact that they're not supposed to get drunk, and yet there they are. They party and get drunk every weekend and sober up just in time for church. And if you ask me, sometimes don't quite seem sober yet when they get to church. Doesn't their faith tell them that they are to have chastity, that sex is only reserved for the context of marriage, and yet there they are sleeping around or cheating on their spouse? Hypocrisy is those who preach the cause but act its opposite. And right out of the gate, I'd like to tell you a story about myself. Now, I have a Rolodex of stories that I could tell you about my own hypocrisy, and I'm going to go easy on myself and give you, I think, one of the lesser stories that I could. I'll save the, the other ones for one-on-one conversations when you pry. You're welcome to do that. A number of years ago, before I was the lead pastor of Central, and obviously not a hypocrite whatsoever, but before, er, way back. Before then, I was in ministry, but I wasn't the lead pastor of our church, and I wanted to get the next iPhone. This is years ago, so it was like the 4 or the 4S, you know, just excited about this new 4S coming. I don't know what it was, but it was something like that. My plan was running up, and I had the opportunity to get another one, so I went a couple days before its release to a, a cell phone kiosk in the middle of the mall that will remain nameless, okay? I went to that kiosk in the middle of the mall, And I said, hey, I'd like the next iPhone. How do do we do that? And they said, well, we've got a waiting list. And uh, if you put your name down, you'll be second on the list. I thought, great. They're like, we're going to get a bunch in in a couple days, and you'll be second on the list. I was like, that's fantastic. A couple days go by. I don't hear anything. I don't hear anything at all. It's been released. I know it's been released. It's the day of the release. haven't heard anything. Go to the mall the next day and say, hey, just checking in. I know I'm second on the waiting list. want to know if you have the phones. And they're like, you know what? They said, the demand was so great that we just gave them out first come, first serve. You don't seem horrified by that. <laughs> I, in Christian love, lost my mind. I lost my mind in the middle, like cell phone kiosk, like the most public mall area. No? Well, what's the point of the waiting list? Are you kidding me? You have a waiting list. I'm number two. You could have let me know. My phone number's on the waiting list, so here we are. There's no phones. That just, went, just lost my mind. The rich irony, of course, is that I probably preached in some way, shape, or form, Christians should love their neighbors, you know, earlier in the week, or we need to, as the church, be a compelling Christian witness. And then there I am at the mall kiosk. Herein lies the tension. We talk about hypocrisy and we can all think of the stories, no? Personal stories. I cringe when I walk by that cell phone kiosk to this day. <sighs> that Rogers, you know. I'm with TELUS now. Anyways. <laughs> So what should we say about doubt? We only have a certain amount of time, what, or this doubt, what should we say about it? What should we say about hypocrisy? How do we address it? Here's what I'd like us to do. Let's read a text from Romans chapter 7 we're going to spend our time in this morning, and then I'll share a roadmap with you. Romans chapter 7, I've got my Bible open to Romans 7 Here's most of the way into the Bible, comes shortly after the four Gospels that start the New Testament Romans chapter 7, it'll also be on the screen. We're going to start in verse 19 and go to chapter 8, verse 1. It says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's where we're going. First, the church contains unbelieving hypocrites, second, the church contains Christian hypocrites. Third, the church isn't built upon hypocrites or morally upright people. It's built upon Jesus. Let's take the first. Now, I have to admit right out of the gate that there are two dominant interpretations of this passage in Romans 7. Two dominant interpretations. A lot of of people land in different places on this text. The first dominant interpretation is that the text I just read to you, refers to unbelievers. So let me just, just kind of acclimatize us to the text here a little bit. In Romans chapter 6, we read, we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, okay? I'm going to unpack that in a second. But then in Romans 7, I'll read verse 14 for you. We read, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. So in Romans 6, what it's just told us, the Apostle Paul has said Christians are delivered. They are no longer slaves to sin. They are slaves to Christ, Non-believers, on the other hand, remain slaves to sin. That's essentially what's been said in Romans 6. Now we come to Romans 7 where Paul says, where he's referring to someone who is a slave to sin. And so therefore what? This must be referring to unbelievers. Unbelievers. That is the way that this gets interpreted as Romans 7, do the things I do not want to do, being referred to unbelievers because they remain enslaved to sin, which is a position of unbelievers. So, what I'd like to unpack here first is that the first reason that judgmental, mean-spirited, inconsistent people, hypocrites, are in the church is because the church contains unbelieving hypocrites. Jesus warned us about this exact thing in Matthew chapter 7 on the Sermon on the Mount where he said in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. What Jesus is saying is he taught that there would be false teachers in the world who lead people astray. And he goes on to say that we are instructed to evaluate the content and fruit of their ministries to ensure that they are true believers. But he doesn't stop there with the fact that there will, be, um, there will be unbelieving or false prophets. He goes on to say that there will also be false disciples in the world when he says in verse 21, "'Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven.'" On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What we need to understand is that Christianity isn't the title for a group of good moral people who avoid cursing, who, when they watch a movie, it's a Christian movie. In other words, typically a terrible movie. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. Uh, or listen to, when they listen to music, they listen to Christian music. And good moral people go to church, so they go to church. These are not the definitions of what a Christian is. Christianity isn't the title for a, good, a group of good moral people who know some stuff about Jesus. The book of James is this shocking book in the scriptures where James, the brother of Jesus, writes that even demons believe in God. They believe and shudder, but demons believe, the point being that mere intellectual assent doesn't save anyone. Jesus saves those who repent and believe in his name. It's a scary thought, I know, but it's true. There are those who deceive others and themselves but who actually don't know or act like Jesus at all. Right now it's believed the data seems to be showing that Christianity is shrinking in North America, and this is alarming to many people in the church. It's not alarming to me. Can I tell you why? Because what seems to be disappearing, what the data seems to be showing is that the mushy middle is what's disappearing. Now, that's a funny name, but the mushy middle refers to those who are Christian in title alone. In other words, they're cultural Christians. They don't go to church. They don't really adhere to the teachings of Christ, but when they get the survey, they tick the box, Christian. Yeah, we're Christian. And so, that is disappearing because there's no longer this kind of p- cultural pressure to be seen as a Christian. That, that's, that's leaving so much so. I, w- I was meeting with a pastor from Toronto last week. He he took a poll in his congregation. 40% of his congregation said if their bosses knew they were Christians, they believed that it would keep them from getting that promotion. In other words, in, within a generation... Things have switched, so much so that it's no longer advantageous for your employer to know you're a Christian. Oh, I must be a good, upright, moral person. That's advantageous to your job. It's flipped in a generation to it's it's not advantageous. It's actually harmful. It's switched, and so people don't feel the pressure anymore to tick the box. The mushy middle is disappearing. What's disappearing in the Christian landscape then, and I think this is a good thing, are those who claim to be morally upright, but look, sound, act, and live no differently than anyone else in the world. James, the, the writer of, of that letter, goes on to write that faith without works is dead, meaning authentic faith actually changes how followers of Jesus live. Their lives Begin to actually look differently. So, the first group of hypocrites we're talking about this morning are those who aren't actually Christians, but who claim to be. Those who wear the title of Christian and are observed by people in society who assume they're Christians, but who never actually try to learn from him or live out what he taught and take his teachings seriously. Here's the warning our confession must be coupled with God-honoring lives, love and good deeds. Authentic faith works itself out in love and good deeds. And where that hasn't happened because of inauthentic faith, it's rightly looked completely distasteful and hypocritical to the watching world. So the first way I want to address this hypocrisy issue Can Christianity be true when Christians are hypocrites? The first thing I would want to say is, well, there are a number of people who identify as Christians, but their lives don't look like Christ at all. And so therefore, they are no witness to Christ. And we just need to be clear on that. But here's the second thing, and this is going to press a little harder. The church contains Christian hypocrites. And our willful sinfulness, our lack of pursuit of holiness and purity actually stands in the way of the Christian faith for many people, does it not? Have any of you had conversations with people who who, who make this point, right? It's been said of Gandhi that he has said, I like your Christ, just not the Christians, or something along those lines, right? This is an obstacle to many people. Hypocrisy leads some people to reject Christianity, and that should alarm us. We are called, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, to be ambassadors for Christ. It states that that, that's what we are. But any time our hypocrisy makes us bad ambassadors, that should grieve us. So part of what I want to do this morning as we talk about hypocrisy is actually call us as a church to repentance. We have much to repent of. Donald Miller in his, his book, Blue Like Jazz, Uh, He was attending this liberal college in Oregon, and him and some of his uh, Christian friends decided on on a, a weekend night to set up a confessional booth right in the middle of the courtyard on this college campus, and so as people were going from place to place and partying, kind of had a few drinks, were walking through the courtyard, they'd come across this confessional booth and probably find it funny, and so one at a time, people through the, over the course of the night would hop in this confessional booth and kind of play the part and start confessing their sins, you know, and kind of mockery and jest. But that wasn't the point why Donald Miller and his friends had set up the confessional booth. They set it up so that when someone came in, they would stop the person from confessing their sins. And Donald would sit there and he would begin to confess the sins of the church. The wrongs of Christians, the wrongs of the church through history to the people. And you know what began to happen? That act of apologizing for the hypocrisy of the church actually gained credibility and a hearing for Christ on that campus, it began to do something. It gave Christianity a hearing, why? Because there were some Christians around who were humble enough to say, yeah, we've been really hypocritical and I'm sorry. Before we planted our Lake Erock campus, Central is one church that meets in multiple locations, obviously this being one of them, but we got to plant a campus in Lake Erock, which is that place you drive by when you're driving on the Lowheed between Agassiz and Mission. And if you blink, you missed it. And uh, we planted a campus there because there's no other church within a 40-minute radius there if you were to drive in that area. So it's such a privilege to get to be there. Before we planted, there was some work to be done because we were replanting. There had been a church there that towards the end was fizzling out and had kind of become a bad name in, in the community. And John Johnstone, who, who works part-time with us, he's an indigenous brother in Christ, and he, he's connecting with uh, people on the reserve, building friendship and relationships there um, because we want to be a church for that whole community. And so as he would have conversations with people before we planted there, he would ask this brilliant question. He would kind of, as he was talking with someone, point towards the church building and say, do they have anything to apologize for? And over and over again, as he talked to people in the weeks and months leading up to the plant of that campus, people would say, yeah, actually this happened, this happened, this happened. And before we ever planted, we got on our knees and we repented of those things. Now, it wasn't physically us, but it was the church. We have a lot to repent of when it comes to hypocrisy. And I think that first step is acknowledging and apologizing. I've got, a, I've got a, a question for a request, I guess you could say, for those doubting Christianity on the basis of hypocrisy. That may be you, or it may be people you love. Here's a way I invite people who um, are doubting Christianity on the point of hypocrisy to look at it It's a slight change in, in how you view the scenario, because we often look in at the Christian and expect that they are going to act rightly all the time. Or in a certain situation, this Christian acted wrongly, and therefore that means Christianity can't be true, right? Or you see it enough times, and you come to that conclusion. But here's the question, the twist on the the, the thought that I would invite you to have. Rather than say, how moral and upright is this person, we should be asking, where did this person start? Like, Sometimes we look at a Christian and we think, man, that person's a hypocrite. But underneath it, you could ask, yeah, but what were they like three years ago? <laughs> Can we just celebrate something here this morning? I haven't flipped out in a mall kiosk in years. <laughs> Thank you. And I should hope not. I'm embarrassed about that. But I genuinely, like, I repent of that. And, and, and the Lord works in my life. He's working in my life. And I just do some of that kind of stuff less. See, we look in at the church, and you notice that that guy goes to your church? Don't you know that he parties, and he sleeps around, he's doing this? And it's like, yeah, I do. But he only came to Jesus three months ago. And you know what? In those three months, God has been doing a work in him like you wouldn't believe. She goes to your church? Yeah. But if you were to look, look at her life in the last five years she's been following Jesus, there has been radical transformation. See, everybody is in the midst of transformation in the church. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are in the midst of a transformation. You have not arrived, we're gonna get to this, the emphasis of the Christian faith in a little bit. You aren't the point. And the reality is that if we look a little, I know it's hard for someone outside of the church to look a little bit graciously at people in the church, but that's a helpful question. Where did they start? Where are they now? Is there any change? Could it be that God is doing some sort of a work in them? Henry Nouwen wrote this, can we only speak, I think it speaks to the tension so well, can we only speak when we are fully living what we are saying? If all our words had to cover all our actions, we would be doomed to permanent silence. Sometimes we are called to proclaim God's love even when we are not yet fully able to live it. Isn't that the tension? As a follower of Jesus, you're called to tell other people about Jesus even while your life doesn't perfectly represent Jesus, and you feel that. How am I supposed to tell this family member I love about Jesus? They know all the worst things about me. They know all my imperfections, and I'm called to be a representative of Christ. Therein lies the tension. We're called to proclaim. We're called to share Jesus, all the while recognizing we're not perfect representations of Jesus. So let's dig into this a little bit. See, I I really think that the church know this about ourselves, that tension. I don't know that we always um, project this about ourselves, but we do know this about ourselves. We're messed up. We're sinful. And we get that it can look hypocritical to the watching world. But when you study Romans 5 to 8, let's look at our text again. When you study Romans 5 to 8, you see the flow of, of, of an argument that Paul is making. In in Romans chapter 5, we see that Paul is talking about justification by faith. I'll define that in a minute. Then by the time he gets to Romans chapter 8, he's talking about the glorification of the believer. In between lie chapter 6 and chapter 7. In chapter 6, Paul deals with antinomianism. There's the theological word of the day, antinomianism which is a fancy word to describe opposing and rejecting God's law. So in chapter 6, Paul is pushing back on those who, who do that, who oppose God's law in light of the gospel. And Paul is saying, no, you're separating the law of God from the person of God. Love is what law demands, and the commands are what love fulfills. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The law has a place. It shows us our sin should, should shine a light on Jesus and our need of Him, which he starts to unpack more in chapter 7 when he deals with the purpose and the limits of the law, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and, and all of those that follow, where the struggle Paul describes is between himself as a new creation in Christ and his old sinful nature that still rears its ugly head. So the text we're reading this morning in chapter 7 then, and this is where I land on this text, Pastor Jonathan, we've talked about this, this Is where Jonathan lands on this text, is what it means to be a Christian who is fully justified, not yet glorified, by be, but being sanctified. Let me define those terms. Justification deals with the guilt of sin. Upon the moment of your conversion, your sin has been dealt with in Christ. You are saved. Jesus dealt with your sin. You are seen. Uh, by God as justified. In the moment of your conversion, justification deals with the guilt of sin. Sanctification deals with the present help we need in fighting sin, and sanctification deals with the pre- uh, sanct- uh, glorification deals with the ultimate defeat of sin. In other words, justification has to do with forgiveness. Glorification has to do with ultimate deliverance. Sanctification has to do with present help. When I read this text, I'm sure everybody relates. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. He goes on, 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. This reflects what's often referred to as the already and not yet aspects to the Christian faith. The fact that we have been, as followers of Jesus, already been saved the already aspect of salvation. But there's also that not yet aspect where believers will be saved ultimately for all eternity upon Christ's return. And Christians live in the tension between the already and the not yet, the tension that Henry Nouwen was mentioning. So here are my words to the Christian as it it deals with hypocrisy. You can and you should battle against sin You can and you should experience victory. You can grow in holiness, Christian, in your sanctification, and therefore become less hypocritical. This should be happening in your lives. But here's the pointed question. Are you engaged in the battle? A barrier to faith for many is the hypocrisy of Christians. Are you engaged in the battle in your own life? Pursuit of holiness in a way that actually makes your living appear less hypocritical. We are called to be ambassadors for Christ in the world, given the ministry of reconciliation. And so, on the one hand, we acknowledge that we are hypocrites who need Jesus, Well, on the other hand, we recognize that as followers of Jesus, we're in the midst of a transformation and we can sh- shine as lights in the world here and now. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great, the great 20th century preacher from London, did a series of sermons on Romans, and, and within it he, he used this illustration, which I find so helpful. He wrote this, imagine a country in which one group of people has for centuries enslaved another group of people. So whenever a member of the enslaved group would meet a member of the oppressing group on the street, the oppressor could order the other person around, and if they didn't obey, the member of the oppressing group could have them beaten or killed. They had the right and power to do it. But then a good king comes into power and decrees emancipation of all the slaves, and he puts soldiers and police officers and judges in place to ensure that his decree gets put in motion. And they are free. But is that all it really takes? The reality is that whenever a member of the enslaved group who had been enslaved their whole lives and came from a group that had been enslaved for centuries, when they would encounter a member of the oppressing group, they would tremble and quake. And when a member of the oppressing group would still order around members of the enslaved group, they did it. The oppressing group didn't have the power to do that anymore, and if the formerly enslaved individuals stood up against it, the oppressors couldn't have done a thing. And yet, over and over and over again, the members of the enslaved group continued to act like slaves. Because even though their status had changed, they truly were free, they didn't always grasp it, they didn't always realize it, they didn't always live according to it, and they spent a good deal of their time as slaves, even though they'd been set free. Every Christian in this room is in that condition. It's the only reason you do anything wrong. It's the only reason you still veer off course. It's the only reason you don't break those habits. You have a real status change. It's not just symbolic. It really happened. And you have been given real power. Romans 8 goes on to tell us that the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and will give life to your mortal body. Christian, the power to fight sin dwells in you and you can win. This is an important conversation to have as we talk about hypocrisy because it must be addressed in the church. So here's a scenario in this image that I've painted for you. The former slave owner calls from across the street, hey, get over here, and instinctively you jump to attention and you begin to walk across the street the street, to your former slave owner. As you begin to cross the street, what should come into your mind is this thought, wait a minute, you don't own me anymore. I have a new master and I can follow him. You have been justified. You will be glorified. You are being sanctified. Are you engaged in the battle? Are you walking by the Spirit? Are you contending for the faith? And are you drawing others to Jesus? These are important questions as we talk about hypocrisy. I want to give you a whole lot of hope, though. So, verse 24 We see Paul crying out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's like, who will deliver me? And then he proclaims, Jesus will deliver me. What both views that I've given you this morning, what both views of Romans 7 agree on is that sin is the problem and that Jesus is the answer to that problem. So let's conclude with this. The church isn't built upon hypocrites or morally upright people. It's built upon Jesus. Celebrities, politicians, religious people, all hypocrites. But Jesus stands alone. Jesus stands alone as the only fully righteous, unhypocritical person who's ever lived. So the invitation, of course, is this. Weigh Christianity not on its followers but on its leader. There have been a number of singing competition shows over the years, right? It's one of the most popular concepts that's been on our our TVs for the last number of years, and a lot of them uh, show as part of the the as part of the program. They show the the worst auditions or the worst performances, which we all know they do it because it is the best part, right? So just imagine with me; it should be easy to imagine if you ever watched American Idol or. Uh, America's Got Talent and all that kind of stuff, that there's this tone-deaf guy who steps up in front of the judges or in in front of the audience, and he belts out, like your ears can hardly bear it, he belts out an Aretha Franklin song. It would be unreasonable for us, as we hear that performance, it would be unreasonable for us to conclude at the end of that, wow, Aretha Franklin is not the Queen of Soul. It wouldn't make sense, right? And if you really love Aretha, you're going to go to people and be like, no, 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 don't judge Aretha on that. You need to listen to Aretha because she is the queen of soul. Can I be really honest with you? A lot of times, as I try and represent Jesus in front of people like this, I walk away feeling like the tone-deaf guy trying to belt out the tune. And it pains me. It saddens me. I I hate that. Because I want nothing to get in the way of people hearing the King of Kings, (laughs) like people meeting Jesus, people coming to know Christ, people encountering the God of the Bible, The Jesus who walked this earth died for your sins, paid the penalty for them on the cross, rose from the grave so that in his resurrected life we could have the promise that we too will be raised again to new life. All of that rests on who Jesus is. And even our best efforts come off a little tone deaf. But we need to to ultimately weigh Christianity on the merits of who Jesus is, what he said about himself, and his finished work. Josh McDowell and Don Stewart wrote Christianity does not stand, it does not stand or fall on the way Christians have acted throughout history or are acting today. Christianity stands or falls on the person of Jesus, and Jesus was not a hypocrite. He lived consistently with what he taught. And at the end of his life, he challenged those who had lived with him night and day for over three years to point out any hypocrisy in him. His disciples were silent because there was none. Since Christianity depends on Jesus, it is incorrect to try to invalidate the Christian faith by pointing to horrible things done in the name of Christianity. A few things to unpack here. First, whether or not Christianity is true does not depend on on the followers of Jesus and how they behave. This, of course, does not excuse hypocrisy in the church, but neither does it mean that hypocrisy itself is sufficient reason to dismiss Christianity. Second, and I already alluded to it, Christ was not a hypocrite in any sense of the word. Often even his critics agree with this point, exalting the high moral standards of Jesus, even while not uh, personally believing or understanding his larger claims about himself. And the third thing we can pull from this quote is that it touches on hypocrisy on a large scale, such as the Crusades, which we'll actually get into in a few weeks when we look at the doubt, don't all the injustices in church history discredit Christianity? Again, this does not excuse hypocritical behavior, but separates it from the very center of Christianity, which is this Jesus and his claims. The philosophical questions to ask of hypocrisy somewhere like something like this. See, accusations of hypocrisy assume that there are moral standards that hypocrites break. But, but why do those standards exist? Where do they come from? Why do we want to hold people to them? Where does that inclination come from? The same is said of evil and suffering, which we talked about last week. We want to put God on the hook for evil and suffering in the world, but the fact that we use such categories is actually more evidence for the existence of God than not. And so in terms of hypocrisy, rather than serve as an argument against faith in God, the objection to hypocrisy actually supports the reality of a transcendent moral being who stands above the fray of hypocritical humanity. In the Christian tradition, we refer to Him as Jesus. As a sort of a picture of the grand sweep of the Bible and what it's saying, Matt Matt Smethurst put it this, this way, Abraham was a liar. Moses was a murderer, David was an adulterer, Peter was a denier, Thomas was a doubter, Lazarus was dead, Jesus saves. I mean, this is the crux of the matter. If you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, you're a part of the big story of God, and you get to ask yourself, well, what's my part in the big story of God? Can I tell you? Liar, murderer, adulterer, denier, doubter dead, what's Jesus' part? Rescuer, redeemer, hope, savior. We looked at the Lazarus story last week, right? And uh, I love how it ends because Jesus calls Lazarus out from the tomb and out out he comes in burial clothes and then there's no more mention of Lazarus, just more mention of Jesus. You know why? Why? the point is Jesus. The point of it all is Jesus. And so, as we close, I want to invite you to look to the leader of the church and the entire Christian faith. The gospel, the good news, isn't about what we can do for God, but what God has done for us in the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. I want to pray over us, and then we'll respond with the song, Jesus we do have a lot of repenting to do because we, we proclaim You, we claim You, we proclaim You. We, we live publicly as Christians in our little spheres of influence, and, and Lord, often we, uh, we misspeak or we behave badly. Ultimately, Lord, that that makes us bad witnesses of you in those moments. And so, Lord, we genuinely need to repent of those things. We thank you for the truths in the text we've looked at this morning. Who will deliver us? You, Jesus. Our hope is in you. We can bring our sin to you and, and find it forgiven at the cross. Not only that, The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living in us, working in us, transforming us, sanctifying us in such a way that our lives reflect you, Jesus, more and more and more and more. Would you help us engage in the battle? Would you help us live for you? And would you help us lovingly point those we love and those in this neighborhood to the whole point of Christianity, Jesus, Jesus alone? We thank you. Amen.